Thank you, guys. Appreciate those songs that fit so well with our observation today and participation in the Lord's Supper. We are starting a new sermon series next week in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and it's uh, entitled A Faith to Follow. So we're going to start next week, and we're going to finish, who knows when, probably sometime in 2015, maybe just before Easter. But there's a lot in this book. Of course, it's a great book to follow up our study of 2 Peter because 2 Peter ends with that discussion of the coming of the Lord and uh, the time of judgment and how we need to live holy and godly lives while we're waiting for his return. And so this book will be kind of a companion volume to that and... uh, The church in Thessaloniki was called a model church, chapter 1 of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going to see how you can be the epitome of what a church ought to be as we study this epistle. Well, it happened in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It was a Monday night during a missions conference. The missionary teacher Ron Klein tells the story. He was trying to encourage people to witness for Christ, and and although there's a lot of things you can do to learn the plan of salvation and verses to memorize, he was trying to come up with something simple just to encourage people to try it. And so he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to commit to tell someone just three words, God loves you, and do it before the end of the week. He said, now to practice, let's turn to each other and say it. And the people tried that, and, and they were uncomfortable. You know, it feels odd and awkward to turn to the person next to you and just say it. He said, you may feel uncomfortable now, but uh, you might even get lockjaw when you try to talk to someone who doesn't know Christ. Three simple words, but sometimes they're the most difficult words to utter. But will you make the commitment before the end of the week to tell someone God loves them, someone who's not a Christian, And so there was a man in that congregation who said, you know, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to speak to my brother. In fact, tonight when I go home, I'm going to call him on the phone and tell him that God loves him. We talk about a lot of things, but I don't think I've ever told him that God loves him. There was another guy in that congregation who who was kind of battling with this because he's made commitments before and he hasn't followed through. But finally, he came to this agreement with the Lord. He said, okay, Lord, uh, how about this? How about the first person I see tomorrow morning? I'll say to them, God loves them. How's that sound? And he seemed like, he thought that was a good commitment. This guy did, and so that was his commitment. The last guy knew exactly what he was going to do. This last guy who made this commitment, or one of the guys, he said, I'm going to the barber tomorrow morning, and again, we talk about a lot of things, but I'm going to just say those three words to the barber before I leave. I'm going to tell him that God loves him. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. So that night, the first guy goes home. He's made the commitment that he's going to call his brother and tell him that God loves him, and just before he dials the phone, he remembers, oh no, it's Monday night football. I can't call on Monday night football. And so he walked out of the room. But he didn't get very far before he felt that conviction in his soul. You know, the Lord kind of saying, wait a minute, you made a promise. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I made a promise, but it's Monday night football. And finally he went back. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll call during halftime. And so he waited for halftime. 
And then he called, his hand shaking, and his brother answers the phone and says, yeah, what do you want? And the guy panicked, kind of froze. And so he blurted out, well, I just called to tell you two things. He didn't have two things. Now he had to make up something else. <laughs> and so he said, well, I, I just called to tell you that I love you. <laughs> and his, there was a pause, and the brother thought, well, this is really weird. You know, brothers don't usually call brothers and tell them that they love him. Are you dying? Do you need money? He says, no, no. I just called to tell you that I love you and God loves you. Click. And that was it. <laughs> and so the guy's wondering, what in the world is this about? In fact, that call from his brother bothered him all night. He woke up in the morning thinking about his brother calling him. He got into his car, backing out of the driveway to go to work, and that's all he could think about was what his brother said. As he was backing out, he noticed that his neighbor was taking the trash out to the corner. Now, the neighbor who's taking the trash out happened to be the second guy who made the commitment, I'm going to talk to the first person I see in the morning. <laughs> True story. And so he takes the trash out, and he sees his neighbor backing out, first person he sees who's not a member of his family. He says, oh, no, Lord, not this guy. I've invited him to church, and he never wants to go. And the Lord said, you made a commitment. And so the guy said, okay, put the trash by the curb, flagged his neighbor down, ran over, the neighbor rolls down the window, and the guy sticks his head in the window and says, hey, I just wanted to say, have a good day, and God loves you, and he ran back into his house. <laughs> and now this guy in the car has heard two messages, and he's, what in the world is going on? He backs out of the driveway and begins to go to work. Guess what he does for a living? He's a barber. And he's got an appointment with a third guy who happens to come in that morning. This guy, not knowing exactly how to break the ice, you know, is, is having his hair cut. And while the barber's working on the, bat, the back, the guy kind of muffles, you know, through his, his voice, his head's down, and he says, I just want to tell you that God loves you. And the barber circles the chair around and says, what did you just say? He said, I, I just wanted to tell you that God loves you. The barber said, what in the world's going on? My brother called me last night to tell me that same thing. This morning, my neighbor told me that, and now you're telling me God loves you. And the guy in the chair hadn't planned this, but he, he just said, you know, God must really love you to go to all this trouble just to tell you. That's a great response. And I'm here to say to you this morning, God must really love you to go to all this trouble just to tell you, the love of God is phenomenal. God spent a lot of time trying to tell Israel that he loved them, and they weren't very faithful. There's a text I want us to focus in on in the book of Jeremiah, but before we do that, we've got to get a little background, and because there are a lot of verses, I'll just have them up on the screen for you. And the first verse gives us this context of God's love to Israel is like a husband to a wife. Jeremiah 2.2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was told these words from Jehovah. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. You see, God demonstrated his love to Israel by forming them into a nation, pulling them out of bondage, and taking them into a land that would be their own. 
And he began a relationship with them like husband to wife. And Israel, in those early days of the honeymoon, they were obedient. Their devotion was acceptable and appropriate, and they followed God wherever he led. But then in chapter 2, verse 9, Jehovah said, My people have committed two sins. The first, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have forsaken me and substituted for me idols. They've left the living water to go to broken cisterns. Now they're worshiping idols. And we read in the very next verse, or the next verse I have listed, verse 27, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and help us. Hey, doesn't that sound like the church today? We're called the bride of Christ. And we often start out so well with that first love of devotion and faithfulness. And then we forsake God. We wander away and we go after other gods and other idols. And we turn our back on God. But the moment we have a problem, we say, oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Chapter 3, verse 20, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You've committed spiritual adultery. You've played the harlot. But God gives this wonderful invitation in chapter 3, verse 22. Return, faithless people, and I will cure your backsliding. Here's the invitation of a loving God whose compassion and mercy is still extended to his disobedient people. And they even say, yeah, we'll come to you. Sure. But they don't. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And there you will find rest for your souls. And they respond by saying, we're not going to do it. We will not walk in it. Isn't that like the church? Yes, Lord, we will follow you. We will return, heal our backsliding, and then this is the way walk in it. No, I don't think so. And we neglect the word in obedience to it. So in Jeremiah 7, 24, they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. So in Jeremiah 18 and verse 17, the Lord says, Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. The book of Jeremiah is a series of these prophecies that speak of judgment coming because of the disobedience of Judah and ultimately captivity taken to Babylon for 70 years. And in the day of your disaster, when you call for help, you get my back, not my face, because that's what you've given me. And yet, in the midst of all of this, chapter 30 through 33 are chapters that that are sometimes called the book of compassion. It's like an oasis of hope in the middle of the book. 
Actually, there's one great prophecy of hope just before you get there. Chapter 29, verse 11. And many of us quote this kind of as a life verse, but now you understand the context. God says, in the midst of the chastisement that is coming upon Judah, in the midst of them being carried away into captivity, God says to them, for I know the plans I have toward you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So in the midst of their difficult time, God says, I want you to look beyond to the bigger picture after the discipline has had its effect. And when there is genuine repentance, you'll seek me and you'll find me, and the plans I have for you are good. Now that brings us, in the midst of this book of compassion in Jeremiah, to chapter 31, chapter 31 and verse 3. The Lord appeared to us, Israel could say. The Lord appeared to us in the past. And he said this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. That last phrase of that verse actually comes from the New Living Translation. I just like the way that's worded, and it's faithful to the text. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. As we have just experienced the communion service this morning, and our focus should be on God's great love to us, I hope we can see from this verse how amazing, how great is the Father's love toward us. Vast beyond all measure. Several aspects of, uh, of the love of God, the character of God's love, come out of this verse. Let's look at them just briefly. The first I see is the antiquity of his love. The Lord appeared to us in the past. They could look back and they could remember a time when God appeared and God revealed his great love. Of course, it was in Egypt. The Lord appeared to them in the cloud and he spoke words of encouragement and hope, words of liberation from bondage, words that took them to a new land marching across the sea. They remembered that time when the love of God appeared to them in that first Passover and while death came to others, God rescued them from the death angel. They looked back and remembered that God's love really stretched way back to the beginning of his formation of this nation. In the past, they had this wonderful memory that God loved them. In Deuteronomy, he said, I don't love you because you're mighty in number. I don't love you because you're great in character. I love you because I love you. Nothing can be attributed, no motive, no, no reason behind the love of God except God's grace, God's mercy. He says, I love you. You know, if you're a Christian, you can go back and look in the memory of your own heart and mind and remember a time when God's love appeared to you, can't you? In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that he loved us before the foundation of the world. That's way back in the past. 
I can remember that time when the love of God appeared to my soul. I mean, I knew something about it, and, and I attended a church a few times, but I can remember in November of 1967 when I heard the love of God, and I saw the love of God, and I felt the love of God like never before. And the invitation was, come, and I will forgive your sin. Come, and I will save you. And I closed with Christ that night by faith. It was all of his mercy. It was all of his grace. The love of God appeared to me, and I've never gotten over that. Oh, except some days when I turn my back to God. His love is of old. He appears to us in the person of his son, he appears to us in the pages of the scripture. He appears to us in the presence of the Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. The Spirit who woos us to the cross. The Spirit who tells us of the love of Christ. Oh, God's love is of old. Secondly, notice the mystery of his love. I have loved you. Isn't that amazing? Think of the people involved. I, the sovereign, holy God of the universe, love you. Wretched, sinful, helpless humanity. Holy God rebels. Righteous God sinners. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his love to us. This is a mystery how the two would ever get together. Not too long after Nancy and I married, almost 40 years ago, I can remember going back to Waterford Mott High School and talking to my baseball coach. Coach K, we were talking, not, not the one down at Duke, this is a different Coach K, but we were talking about baseball. And he wanted to know about my life, and, and I told him that I was married, and he said, you are married? I said, yeah, I'm married. And I happened to have a picture of Nancy, and so I opened up my billfold and showed a picture of uh, my wife to Coach K, and he said, she's beautiful. Like he was surprised. She's gorgeous. How did you ever get her? That's exactly what he said. Coach was always a great encouragement to me. <laughs> he said, well, I didn't go very far in baseball, I'm sure. But. <clears throat> and he was serious. And, you know, I, I agreed. I said, I don't know. I'm just pray the Lord would keep her blind all these years. <laughs> How did we ever get together? I, Jehovah says, have loved you. Why? Amazing love. How, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Explain that to me. How the sovereign of the universe would step out of the glories of heaven and the privileges of perfection to come to this sin-cursed earth and be a man to die in our place. How God loves you. That's the message. There's a mystery to it, but it is so amazing. Not only is there a mystery to this love, but notice the eterni eternality of his love. For it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and it is unfailing. The Bible tells us in Psalm 90 and verse 2 that before the mountains were born, or God brought forth the earth, 
from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Remember that psalm from Moses? All the way to the past before the foundations of the world and all the way into the future where time will never end in eternity. That's the existence, that's the nature, that's the person of God from everlasting to everlasting. He's always God and his love is just as big. It never ends. Matthew Henry said, it is everlasting in the counsel of it. It's everlasting in the continuing of it. It's everlasting in the consequences of it. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he's writing in Romans chapter 8. Who's going to separate us from the love of God? Take a shot. Anything in heaven? Nope. Anything on earth? No. Nope. Any person, spirit, uh, tribulation, what? Name it. Can anything separate those whom God has saved from his love? And the answer is nothing. Isn't that a great chapter? Because his love for us is eternal. Now, you may be wandering from that love today. You may be feeling the chastening rod. You might have choked on the bread this morning because you know that all is not right with your life. You're too much like Israel going after other gods. You've espoused yourself to one husband, but you found yourself going after other lovers. You've left the living spring and you've forged broken cisterns that aren't giving you any satisfaction whatsoever. You say to pleasure and to job and to hobby, you are my God. I want you to know today that the eternal love of God is still going after you, dear wayward child, and says, come home. Return, O backslider, and I will heal. Past, present, future. The amazing love of God. Andrew Bernard put some of these thoughts into a poem when he said, O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought beyond all knowledge and all thought. O love of God, our shield and stay through all the perils of our way, eternal love in thee we rest, forever safe, forever blessed. God's love for you is eternal. We notice also from this text that the love of God has activity to it, the activity of his love. For it says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you to myself. In Hosea chapter 11, it says we're drawn by the cords of love. Here it says it's the unfailing love, the loving kindness, the said of God that draws us to him. His intentions and plans are good. God wants to bless you with the greatest blessings that man could ever experience. Now, it's true that by the terror of the law, we persuade men. It's true that sometimes judgment grabs man's attention, but it's the love of God that brings him home. Isaiah says it's the strange way of God to go by way of judgment which implies the natural way of God is mercy and grace and love. 
It was the prodigal who understood his dire straits that he would die soon. That sent him running to his father's house. But the last few yards were quickly run when he saw his father coming after him and heaping kisses upon his face and saying, Welcome home, my child. That's the father's love. Welcome home. Did you notice... The Bible says in John 12, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. There's a sense in which God draws the attraction of the world because of the cross. And there is also this even more specific and powerful drawing of the spirit where he brings us unto himself because salvation is all of grace. And we become his because the drawings of love Chastisement you will experience. Are you a child? Are you God's son or daughter? He scourges everyone he receives, Hebrews 12 tells us. But he draws you with cords of love. One final thing I want to say about this verse, and that's the intimacy of his love. For it says, Israel could say it was to us. I have loved you and I have drawn you to me. That's God's grand design, to draw you to himself. We've been redeemed that we might have fellowship with the Son, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. The intimacy of his love. We quote John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and that's a great verse, and we ought to quote it, but the world is kind of, you know, out there. It's kind of everyone and although it includes you we rarely think of us in such a verse but the apostle paul said this galatians chapter 2 i'm crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ lives in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god what's the rest of it who loved me and gave himself for me Paul, do you mean that God didn't give himself for anyone else? No, no. He gave himself for the world. But now I understand when he died on the cross, he died for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Has that ever gripped your soul? Has the love of God, has, have you got a vision of that love so pure, so powerful, so eternal, aimed at your soul? like a beam of light from the sun through a magnifying glass until you burn with love for him here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We love him because he first loved us. But the intimacy of his love, it's for you. It's for you that God had these designs. It's for you that his son died. It's for you that he appeared of old. It's for you that he has reaffirmed his love. It's for you that he's drawing you today back into intimate, warm fellowship with him, saying, come home. The love of God throughout the scripture, you find it everywhere. It's just all throughout the Bible, in the mercy and the loving kindness of God, in his grace. Let it draw you back to him. The true, true story is told of a mother by the name of Karen. 
lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. She was pregnant, and she had one other child, three-year-old, by the name of Michael. She decided that she needed to do something to kind of get Michael ready for this new threat in the home, to uh, prepare Michael for a new baby sister so there wouldn't be the sibling rivalry. So every night, just before Michael would go to bed, he and his mother would be there in his bedroom, and he would put his hand on his mother's stomach and talk to his baby sister, found out it was a girl. And Michael started singing to her every night, and the bond of love was established. It came time for Karen to deliver, and she had a lot of problems. An ambulance was called from St. Mary's Hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee, whisked her away to the emergency room where the baby was delivered in an emergency C-section, but there were great complications. The baby, the little girl, was put into a neonatal unit, and after a couple days, the doctor said to Karen and her husband, you better prepare for the worst. Baby's losing ground. I don't think we can save it. Save her. Now, Michael had never gotten in to see his baby sister because there was a law that no children were allowed in the intensive care unit, and there was also a head nurse that was more like a drill sergeant, and <laughs> you couldn't get in if you wanted to. Into the second week, when Karen and her husband were looking at cemetery plots instead of thinking about remodeling the nursery back home, Karen said, you know, if I don't take Michael in to see his little sister, he'll never see her. He'd been begging every day, can I see her, can I see her? And every day Karen said no, but she said, you can go in now. She dressed him up in some scrubs. He looked like a walking laundry basket because they were so big for him. And she marched right past that drill sergeant who said, you can't go in here. And Karen said, just try to stop me. And in they went. And Michael saw for the first time his baby sister hooked up to tubes and wires, not breathing well. He looked up at his mom and looked at his baby sister and decided to sing her that song that he sang every night. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Something amazing happened. The pulse on the baby quieted. The breathing went from laborious to restful. Almost immediately, color came into the infant's face. Keep singing, Michael, keep singing, Karen said. And he sang, and he sang some more. The other night, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. Keep singing, Michael, keep singing. And as he sang, the baby improved. True story. Women's Day magazine said it was the miracle of the brother's song. The doctor said, we can't explain it. It's a miracle. And Karen said, it was the love of God from brother to sister. Established long before and communicated in song that brought healing to that child. And the truth of the matter is this. The very next day, baby was released and went home well. And when I think of that story, I think that 
you and I are on life support. We're sick. We have no hope. We're about ready to die. We're without God in the world. And in the pages of Scripture is the song of God's love from the lips of Jesus, from the prophets, from the apostles, from God himself. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And today I'm drawing you to myself. How can you reject such love? That's the kind of love that warms the heart and feeds the soul and forgives sin and makes us children of God. And all I can say is this. God must love us very much to go to all this trouble just to tell us. Let's pray. Lord, how can we be so unmoved when you have given your Son to be our Savior and Lord? How can we be untouched and go through every day without living out of gratitude and spiritual devotion and obedience to you? Lord, you formed us for yourself and you sent your son to die for the world, but you died for me. Thank you. May the rest of my life be lived in such a way that every day I will say thank you by my words, my devotion, my obedience, my surrender, my activities. O oh, love of God, we praise you.